0: Last Sunday, we began to study Job's response to Bildad's first speech. In an effort to defend himself against Bildad's unmerited attacks, Job desired to take his case to the highest court in heaven, argue before the Almighty, and reverse the injustices that had befallen him, namely his his suffering. But as he fantasized about meeting God in court, he realized there were obstacles in his way. Last Sunday, we looked at the first obstacle, which Job identifies in chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, the predicament of God's infiniteness. Job reckoned that God was simply too holy, too perfect, too powerful, too great, too knowledgeable, too wise, and too brilliant to resist in court. And he was right. He was right. In the next section, we will Look at the second obstacle in Job's general analysis. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 35 today. We're going to attempt to close out the chapter. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, we come to You once more in prayer here as we begin to worship You through the ministry and preaching. And teaching of Your Word. Father, we know that without the Spirit's aid, coupled with a humble heart, we will not get it. We will not understand. We will not comprehend. We will not even desire to obey. So we pray that the Holy Spirit prevails here this morning, that He prevails within each of Your children here today. May He convict our hearts and Transform our lives through the power of Your Word. Make us humble listeners, humble students, desiring to grow in our faith, in our knowledge, in our wisdom, in our understanding of You. So, Father, we pray this morning that You open our minds, hearts, ears to the truth, and help us to to not only hear, but to apply and to obey it. We are to be not just hearers, but doers. And so prevail upon us this morning now as we come to You, be glorified in and through this sermon. We pray in Jesus' matchless name, amen. Well, we can pick up where we left off last Sunday. That would be number two, the permanence of God's judgment. We see this in verses 13 through 24. We'll pick up at verses 13 and 14. This is what Job says next in his response to Bildad. He says this, he says, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? This is the the second obstacle in Job's way. And when I say obstacle, this is the second thing that would keep him from attempting to meet God in court. He tells Bildad that God will not restrain his anger, which he believed was pointed at him, right? All of his calamity, losing his his wealth, children, and health, he believed that this was all the result of God's judgment and anger against him. And he literally tells Bildad in this opening line, he's not going to stop being angry with me. He believed he was under the judgment of God and receiving divine retribution. But he didn't understand why. According to his theology of rewards and retribution and the wisdom of bygone ages, when God judges, that's it. There's no going back. When God renders a judgment and begins to to, um, exert his anger and, and punish the wicked or the evil or whatever, that's just it. He never relents and he just pushes all the way through until they are completely destroyed. In other words, he will not relent once he hands down judgment. This is what Job is saying here. And he includes an example to prove his point, the helpers of Rahab. And you're probably thinking of Rahab the harlot. This is not Rahab the harlot, not Rahab the prostitute from Joshua 2, verses 1 through 21. That came way later. Remember, Job's probably the first book in the Bible to be written. It predates Rahab the harlot. So this is not her, the woman who helped the Israeli spies at Jericho. It is Rahab, the mythological sea monster. Rahab is also mentioned in Job chapter 26, verse 12, where it says, by his power, God stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. According to in ancient myth, Rahab was an evil water dragon, a demonic angel of the sea. The Almighty had slayed along with Rahab's helpers. This is of a, a Jewish folklore. The book of Job, really, if you think about it, is a one-stop shop for all sorts of bizarre, dangerous, mythological creatures. It mentions Leviathan, right, twice chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 41, verse 1, that's a mythological creature, and I think probably a dinosaur. It mentions Tannin in chapter 7, verse 12, it mentions Rahab here in verse 13, and over in 26, verse 12, and then it mentions Bohemoth, which I believe was a mythological creature as well as probably a big dinosaur, chapter 40, verse 15. Job is the book. If you want, to, if you want Lord of the Rings, read Job. We were watching uh, the second one, the two towers last night, and I said, this is like straight out of the book of Job. Look at these things flying around, killing people. Now, later on, this same Rahab, or Rahab in general, not speaking of, of the prostitute who helped the Israelites, but Rahab came to symbolize the Egyptian empire that had enslaved God's people for 400 years. So the Israelites began to refer to Egypt and the Pharaohs as a Rahab. Isaiah 51 verses 9 through 10 speak to this, it says, "'Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not God who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not God who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over?'' You can see Isaiah is referring to the Exodus, and then Rahab in this context is a reference to the Egyptians. Job essentially felt that the Almighty was judging him like one of the helpers of this evil water dragon, Rahab. He's in a sense complaining to God that you're treating me like one of Rahab's helpers by judging me and destroying me. And since God did not relent in His judgment against Rahab and Rahab's helpers, how could Job expect a different outcome if he presented his case in heaven? That's the logic. Any effort Job made to vindicate himself would be an exercise in futility. He would be unable to to reverse God's judgment no matter what answers he gave or words he chose to use. This is what he says. The permanence of God's judgment would be an insurmountable obstacle to Job as it had been with Rahab and Rahab's evil helpers. That's Job's logic. That's what he's saying through his poetry here. He's treating me like the helper of a sea monster. It wouldn't do me any bit of good at all to try to go before him and plead my case. I'm under his judgment like they were. It's an exercise in futility for me to even consider something like this. This is precisely what he's saying. Of course, he uses poetry, which makes it difficult to understand. Verse 15, he says, "'Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser.'" Job tells Bildad that he knows he is in the right, but it doesn't matter because he would not be able to stand against God's might, answer God's cross-examination, or overturn God's judgments. His only option at this point would be to appeal for mercy to his accuser. But Job had it backwards. He had a lot uh, that he wrote in his book backwards, right? Because he's so distressed and so hurt over what's happened to him. He's suffering tremendously, unlike anything that I think that we've experienced, although some of us have experienced uh, quite a bit of suffering. But His mind is not right, and and so much of what he says is backwards because of his pain. He was backwards here. God was not his accuser. Satan was. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that's where Satan lobs his accusations against Job. He only worships you because of what you've given him, not because of who you are. That's the accusation against Job and against God. So he had it backwards. He goes through a tough time and he thinks that God is his accuser when in fact it is the devil. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us of wrongdoing before God day and night. But those who are in Christ Jesus by grace through faith have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb, right? Revelation chapter 12 verses 10 and 11. Satan's accusations against us have no weight, they have no merit, because when God looks on us, he sees the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 22. If if only Job had maybe understood something like this. I understand that he lived before the Bible had been written. He lived before there was really any notion of Christ, although Genesis 3 gives us the notion, but he doesn't seem to be aware of any of this. But for him to call God, his accuser, and to plead for mercy is just a bizarre thing. This is the pain that he's feeling. He doesn't really know how to respond to it. Job did not need to appeal to God for mercy. I mean, we all need the mercy of God. He needed the mercy of God, just like every saint does, but he didn't need to appeal to God for mercy in this particular scenario. He had made sacrifices. He, he had turned from evil. He was a committed Christian. He was a real believer. He obeyed God, did the things that God told him to do. He was in relationship with God, right relationship. This is what led to his suffering. This is what led to his testing. His right relationship brought that about, not a wrong relationship. He doesn't need to plead to God for mercy. In fact, pleading to God for mercy to bring His suffering to an end would do nothing because God was working through this whole situation, according to chapter 1, according to chapter 2, for higher purposes. But he doesn't understand and he thinks that God is accusing me and punishing me. I need to plead with Him for mercy. And it's, it's very confusing to him because he's a blameless, upright man. He, he did not understand that he was still right in God's eyes. He did not understand that Satan was his accuser, not God. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in the book of Job is, with Job and his friends, is a a majorly underdeveloped understanding of evil. They they always seem to attribute all of the calamity and evil that happens to them to God. Now, we understand that God is sovereign, and they do have that view. So I, I rejoice in the fact that they know that nothing can happen to them without God, but at the same time, It's like God killed my kids, God struck me with boils, God did this. There's no mention of evil here. There's no no mention of Satan with the exception of chapters 1 and 2 where we're given the prologue so we know who's actually behind all this suffering and who causes all this carnage. But they have a massively underdeveloped theology of evil. They do believe that God is sovereign and we praise God for that. But they attempt to nail God for things that God clearly has not done. And that's what He's doing here. He's my accuser. No, Satan is your accuser. He doesn't understand that here. Verses 16 through 18, Job continues by saying, if I summoned him speaking of God and he answered me, I would not believe that he was actually listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. This is a man who is severely hurting here and has his entire perspective skewed and maligned and twisted. Job tells Bildad that if if he called on God and God answered him, He would not believe that God would actually listen to him and and hear him out. Even if, if God turned his face toward me and acknowledged the fact that he heard me calling out to him, I don't think that he'd actually be listening to me. This is what Job says. I guess God's not interested in hearing the prayers of his people. But the funny thing is, if you go back to all the way forward to chapter 40, you can see that God listened to every complaint of Job. He heard everything Job said. And gave Job a good kick in the pants. In Job's mind, God was interested only in crushing him with a tempest, as he had allegedly done to his own children. Chapter 1, verse 19, right? It was a a windstorm that that knocked down the house that killed Job's kids. And, And he thinks that God was behind that or God did that. And now he's saying all he wants to do is keep crushing me with violent windstorms. Just as he has done with my kids. He's not interested in hearing me. He's interested in crushing me. He's interested in multiplying my wounds without cause. He's interested in in, uh, multiplying my wounds to the point that, that I can't even catch my breath is what Job says. He's interested in not hearing but in filling me with all bitterness. This is what he says. But God had no interest in crushing Job, he even stated this in chapter 2, verse 3, where he tells the devil, you sought to bring me against my servant. This is, what, this is God's rebuke to Satan. So, so it was necessary that Job go through this, but God wasn't sitting back going, I can't wait to crush my servant. He wasn't interested in, in literally crushing Job. Yes, he did allow Job to be crushed, but his heart wasn't in a, necessarily in agreement with that toward his servant. What God was interested in is in refuting the accusations of Satan. And he allowed Satan to crush Job because he knew Job would prevail and thus vindicate the truth. That his people worship him for who he is, not merely because of what he gives. Just think about it. You have a man who is the Trump of his day. He is the wealthiest, greatest man of all the people in the East. Wealthier, healthier, bigger family, bigger storehouses, bigger farms, bigger everything. The guy is at the top. And Satan is convinced that the only reason why he's at the top is because he just... Keeps asking God for more stuff and just worships God because he keeps getting more stuff from God. And Satan makes this accusation and God says, well, then you can go ahead and have your way with him. You just can't kill him. Take away everything and you'll see how he responds. He won't curse my name. He'll continue to worship. He'll complain. He had no interest in crushing Job. God's interest was far more pure than that and it had to do with letting Job be crushed so that the true fruit of Job's faith could be exposed, thus vindicating Job, thus vindicating God against the hurling accusations of Satan." That's the whole book in a nutshell. It's sad that Job viewed God the way that he did here and throughout the book. But it's understandable, right? We don't want to puff up our chests and, and begin to even entertain the idea that we would do so much better than Job did under his duress. Oh, we would, we, would, we would complain a lot less. We complain over lesser things. Traffic. You know how Job would have handled traffic? Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. How do we do it? You son of a biscuit. Yeah, I mean, we. there's no way. There's no way we're not better than him. We are are lesser saints than this man. I believe so. Intense suffering can twist the minds of the greatest saints. And Job was certainly the greatest saint of his day. Chapter 1, verse 8, God says it. there's no one like him on earth. He reiterates in chapter 2, verse 3, there's no one like Job on earth. Job was the super saint of his day, and he complained. Interestingly, when God finally answers Job in the latter chapters, chapter 40, 41, 42, he answers Job through the tempest, through a whirlwind. Isn't that interesting? Verses 19 through 21. Job says, "If it is a contest of strength, if that's what's going on between me and God, behold, He is mighty," exclamation point. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am right, or though I am in the right, my mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me to be perverse. I am blameless, and yet I regard not myself, I loathe my life. Job tells Bildad that if the situation between him and God is, is some kind of contest of strength, he readily and quickly admits that he would lose because he knows that God is mighty. He knows that, that nobody can stand up to God. Nobody can stand against God. Nobody can stronghold or strong arm God. If this is a contest of might, I throw in the towel. That's what Job says. If it is a a matter of justice, Job will lose because he knows that nobody can subpoena God and actually take Him to court, let alone get Him into court and argue your case against Him. That would be an exercise in futility. He realizes these things. You know, he says something really stupid in the last few verses, but then he says something brilliant here. This is the mind of the person, of the Christian person who is racked by severe emotional, spiritual, physical pain, even when the body's in pain. We say things that are completely biblical and then we say things that aren't. And Job admits a second time here that he is in the right. You see that, right? I know I'm in the right. And he even touts his blamelessness twice, but he knows that he will end up saying, if he's in a, if he's in a case against God and he's arguing his case, he knows that no matter how blameless or how right he is, as God cross-examines him, cross-examines him, he knows that he will wind up saying something incriminating, he will wind up condemning himself because the Almighty is infinitely brilliant. He knows that the Almighty has these all-seeing eyes. And, and knows where everything is in his life and in his heart, and he just knows that, hey, if I were to try to argue against him, I'm, I'm going to trip up at some point, and God's just too brilliant. He's not the, the goalie you can get one past. He's going to stop the ball.. And then he's going to make me look like a perverted idiot. This is what he says. Though Job was blameless, God would prove him perverse as he pleaded his innocence. And I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, where many or where words are many, sin is not absent. Amen to that? The more we talk, the more we sin. I'm sinning when I'm silent, but when my lips start moving, boy, you get to see it on display. But the more we talk, the more we sin. And Job's fear is precisely that. I'm going to try to argue in front of him. I'm going to say something dumb. He's been saying dumb stuff already before God. He is before God because God is everywhere. Because Job was blameless but would yet by God be proven perverse, he just did not regard himself as one who could actually resist God in court, and therefore he loathed his life well, if I can't go before God and argue, my, this is his logic, if I can't go before God and argue my case because he's infinite and I'm finite, he's perfect, I'm imperfect, if I can't do that, then I just, I, I've got no hope of reversing this, this judgment that's against me, this anger that's against me, and I'm just left to one thing and one thing alone. I can't even plead my, anything to him for mercy because that's not even going to happen. There's one thing for me left to do, and that's just, I hate my life. This is what he says here. I hate my life. I hate my life." Why? Because he believed that God would not turn and change. He believed His suffering would never end. Verses 22 through 24, he says, "'It is all one. Therefore I say He destroys," and this is where he gets really twisted, "'He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, He mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers, speaking of God, He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not He, who then is it? This is by far, by far. I mean, you can tell it, right? I can see Jared nodding his head up and down. He knows what I'm going to say. This is by far the most disturbing verse or set of verses in this entire chapter. This This is just blatant irreverence. He basically tells Bildad three things about God that are entirely untrue and that make God seem unjust. First, he claims that God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. So so no matter what, God destroys those who are, because blameless basically means righteous, He destroys the righteous right along with the wicked. He does not discriminate. He, he kills them both. This is what he says. And why does he say this? Because he was a blameless man, right? And he believes he's receiving the judgment and destructive power of God. He believed that God was destroying him. I'm blameless. You're destroying me. I've seen you blame wicked people. Obviously, you don't discriminate. You don't care. One doesn't make a difference over the other, and you just kill us all. That's what He says. But was God actually destroying blameless, righteous Job? No, not according to chapters 1 and 2. Satan had destroyed him. Remember, these guys have a, a deficient theology of evil. Satan had destroyed him. He destroyed Job's wealth. He destroyed Job's children. He destroyed Job's health. He destroyed everything about Job. And he's the reason why Job is sitting on the ash pile with maggots and boils all over him. Now, we know that God is sovereign, and we see the interaction between Satan and God in chapters 1 and 2. And we, So we know that God is sovereign. We know that God allowed Satan to do this. We know that he had one primary exception, and that was that Satan could not take Job's life, right? Chapter 2, verse 6. So we know that it was, it was Satan's hands and malevolence and maliciousness and anger and ferocity and hatred that caused all of this destruction in Job's life. At the discretion of God, at the approval of God, at the suggestion of God, because God has higher purposes that Job doesn't know about and that Satan doesn't understand. So the question is Does God destroy the blameless like Job said he does? Job says he destroys the blameless. No, no, he doesn't destroy the blameless, he doesn't destroy the righteous, but he will let things happen to them because he has higher purposes. Right? You need to understand this. These things are actually ordained by the loving heart of our Father for us. It's not malevolence, it's not maliciousness, it's not hatred, it's not anger that that God forges against us in His destructive power. He allows, ordains things to happen to us because He has higher purposes. See, our higher purposes are not His higher purposes. Our higher purposes are what? To be wealthy, to have a, a great family with many children that are, that are healthy in all this, to, to have great health. These are our higher purposes. That's the American dream. But God has higher purposes that transcend all of that. His purposes are way higher, cosmic in nature. But see, when those two things aren't in agreement... Our higher purpose isn't His. That's where we start to do what Job is doing. Ah, right? And that's what happens. So was Job right? No, he was not right. But God will allow things to happen to the blameless. The blameless or righteous will suffer persecution. It's guaranteed. The blameless or righteous will suffer sicknesses and diseases why because they exist in a fallen world in bodies that are racked with sin that are being destroyed by the ravages of sin not the ravages of time but by sin the righteous have to have to deal with these things just as the unrighteous do the blameless or righteous will suffer persecution. They will suffer sicknesses, illnesses, diseases. And guess what? They will eventually die like everyone else unless the Lord returns before that happens. But none of this is because God is destroying the righteous. God actually works through persecution and sickness to sanctify His people, to make them more and more like Jesus. Romans 8.29, I have to say this over and over to myself and to you. Jesus suffered, and if we're going to become like Him, we have to suffer. You can't be made like Jesus without suffering. That's a key ingredient. And aren't you thankful that your suffering has a higher purpose? And that's to mold and conform you, to make you like Jesus over time. Although I don't think we react like Jesus did. Job certainly isn't. But there is a higher purpose behind it. I'm so glad that, 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 that Scripture wonderfully illustrates the purpose of our suffering, the purpose of our persecution, especially in the New Testament. And guess what? The thing that scares us the most, most times, death, is the very thing that God works through to bring us home. To the believer, death is a blessing. To those who have to remain who love that believer, it stinks. But it's still a blessing because it brings us right into his presence. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. God works through all of these things. They're not his, his punishment. They're not His judgment against us. I like to refer to them as necessary evils. I said that like Mike Myers, evil, the fruits of the devil. You've seen, never mind, that was a stupid reference. My wife knows what I'm talking about. So I Married an Axe murder. It's one of our favorite movies. I'm sorry. Jared's like, move on. He works through these necessary evils. I mean... Was it not a necessary evil that the spotless, blameless blameless Lamb of God be betrayed by His friends? That's an evil. To be completely punished and slaughtered by His own people that He came to save, that's a necessary evil. God worked through those necessary evils, the treatment of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ to work out our salvation. Do you see how he works through the evil to bring about good? Only God can do this. He does it brilliantly. And and he's, he's literally doing this through Job's life, even though Job thinks it stinks and it hurts, but he's doing it through Job's life and through his suffering. It's not a matter of us being destroyed by God, it's a matter of us being purified and made more holy and conformed to the image of his Son, which is the purpose of our salvation. Job probably understood how God feels about the righteous, but his terrible circumstances probably, and obviously I think, twisted his thinking. The Bible teaches that God makes sinners righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 3 verse 22. So Righteousness isn't something that we automatically possess. It's something that God makes us through Jesus Christ. How can God hate and want to destroy the righteous when He's the only one in all of creation who can actually make anyone righteous? It's His work to make us righteous. Psalm 146 verse 8 plainly says, God loves the righteous. Psalm chapter 5 verse 12, God blesses the righteous. Yes, even in the midst of tremendous suffering that He has sovereignly ordained, He still blesses the righteous. He still gives us joy. He still gives us hope. He still meets our basic needs. And Matthew 25, verse 46, God gives the righteous eternal life. This is the heart of God toward the righteous. It's not destruction. It's, It's He gives them righteousness, He gives them salvation, He gives them blessings, He gives them His love, He creates us for all of that. It's not a matter of hatred, it's not a matter of judgment, it's not a matter of punishment, it's not a matter of destruction for us. The Bible does, however, teach that God destroys, it never teaches that God destroys the righteous. Job was uh, incorrect on that point, but it does, however, teach that God destroys the wicked. Job was right about that part of it. He was wrong about the righteous, but he was, he was wrong about the righteous, but he was right about the unrighteous. God certainly does destroy the wicked. I mean, there are just too many verses to list here. Psalm 145, verse 20 is just a good place to start. It says, The Lord preserves all who love him. That's the righteous, but all the wicked he will destroy. So that was the first thing that he told Secondly, Job claims that when disaster brings sudden death, God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. This makes God sound like a heartless tyrant, like Newsom. Innocent means without fault or blameless. Job was obviously referring to himself here, right? He he imagines God in heaven sitting on His throne mocking his calamity, laughing at the sudden death of his children. Can you believe that that's his perspective here? He thinks that God's just sitting up on the throne going, ha, 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 look at his 10 kids. They got crushed by the windstorm. This is just twisted. Does God do this? Of course not. We've already established how God feels about the blameless, about the righteous. He loves them. He blesses them. He gives them eternal life. We've already established how how God feels about the the destruction of the wicked. We we know that He destroys the wicked. He doesn't destroy the righteous. He doesn't destroy the blameless. Scripture talks about how he He doesn't even rejoice Uh, He doesn't rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't even rejoice in the destruction. He destroys the wicked, but He doesn't rejoice in it. And Scripture teaches very clearly that that He does not rejoice in the death of His saints. What? When His saints die, it is precious in His eyes. And we've already established the fact that he wasn't interested in crushing Job, but in using Job to prove his point to Satan and to all creation. My true people worship me for who I am, not for what I give. The good things that I give them certainly inspire worship, but that's not the only reason why. And Job is just twisted in his thinking that God would somehow be laughing at his calamity and mocking his calamity. God is not a cold, tyrant. God doesn't even rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. And every time a saint dies, it is precious in His sight. How could Job think this? If God loves the innocent, the blameless, considers their deaths precious and is not interested in harming them but in using them for His glory and for His higher purposes, how could He possibly mock their calamity? Put it plainly, Job was just absolutely wrong. So that's the second thing that Job tells Bildad. Thirdly, Job claims that the earth is in the hands of the wicked, and God covers the faces of those who are supposed to judge so that the wicked can just basically, while the judges are covered up, the wicked can just run crazy. It's the wicked run wild or gone wild, and they can just prosper in all their wickedness. This is another charge against God that Job makes here. And this strange statement is partially true. The earth is in the hands of the wicked in a sense. 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, the devil. Psalm 73 verse 3 tells us that the wicked prosper, no doubt. But this charge against God that He somehow covers the faces of the judges and just, just He never, and what Job's saying is He just does not restrain evil at all. Look at what He's let happen to me. This this charge that He doesn't restrain evil or restrain wickedness is just ridiculous. God has employed four restraints against wickedness. The conscience, which convicts the mind and heart of wrongdoing, that is a God-given restraint against evil and wickedness. Another one, the second one, would be parents who bear the rod of discipline. God has ordained parents to bear the rod of discipline against their children to prevent evil and wickedness in their lives and from becoming manifest and spread. This is why it is necessary that we discipline our children. If we don't discipline them, they will become devils. And they will burn down businesses that don't belong to them and act like morons. That's what's going on. People have not been disciplined. And look at what they're doing in the nation. All under the guise of a just cause. Uh, Third restraint, government and law enforcement who bear the sword. The government is to be a terror to evildoers. The government... Law enforcement together are to suppress and restrain evil. That's why they bear the sword. That's that's their ordained purpose. And lastly, the last restraint God has ordained and established is the church. The church that is to be what? Salt and light that wields the sword of the Spirit. But these God-ordained restraints are vanishing. The conscience is nearly obliterated. People can no longer tell right from wrong, amen? They can't even tell what their biology is. The nuclear family is being replaced with perversions, two men, two women, right? That's a restraint that God has established that our culture is destroying the nuclear family. Our government now does the reverse of what it's ordained to do. It rewards the wicked and turns its sword against the righteous. It does the opposite of what it's supposed to do, right? Another arm of the government, which is supposed to bear the sword, right? Against the, the, the sword of terror against evildoers, right? Our police, they are being attacked, they are being murdered, and they are being defunded. Our culture is hell-bent on ending that God-ordained restraint. I hope you have a gun, because you're going to have to protect yourself pretty soon. And then, is not... The fourth and final restraint under attack, the church, which is told it can't meet, it can't sing, it can't preach certain things in the Bible, that's the fourth restraint which is under attack in America today. I never thought I'd see the day. We have this constitution, these amendment rights that protect us that are being just destroyed. All of the restraints that God has established and given to restrain evil are being destroyed in this Romans 1 country. This country has been handed over to judgment. It will be destroyed. When the restraints are gone, what stops anything? You have anarchy. Are we not seeing that, telling us we can't sing to our Lord? The restraints that God has ordained are in place, but they are being eroded day by day. Some have been, just the conscience. I mean, to me, that's just been obliterated. Not in everyone, but in most people. And who is behind this? The devil, Satan, the demons. Wicked people all working in conjunction together to remove these restraints. They talk about not being fettered. We don't want to be fettered by God. we got to remove all these restraints. It's all of them working together. Job is is correct in that the wicked do run wild in a sense. They do spread their evil, but he is incorrect about God. God has employed restraints. And He will destroy the wicked, Psalm 37, verse 38. Undoubtedly, He will. Their day is coming. In fact, He has prepared the wicked for the day of destruction. Proverbs 16, 4. Job is just twisted up in his thinking. He's got it all backwards here. Lawson quickly wrote, With mounting self-confidence, Job charged God with the injustices and inequities of this world. Surely, these injustices must be behind Job's suffering. I think you got it backwards, God, and look at me, I'm paying for it. That's what he's saying. That is the permanence of God's judgment. It's just fixed in Job's mind. There's no way he he can get out of this situation, but he can hurl accusations against God. Now we move to his general analysis, number three, the pointlessness of Job's pursuit We see this in verses 25 through 35, the rest of the text. We pick it up at 25 and 26. Job now switches it up a little bit and tells Bildad, My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. It's all poetry. Job essentially tells Bildad that his days are going by swiftly faster than a runner, like reeds rushing down a stream. And like an eagle swooping down from the sky onto its unsuspecting prey, he also says that his, his days see no good, which means that he has absolutely no joy, nothing to look forward to. Through his poetry, he is saying that he doesn't have enough time to prove his innocence before God. I'm running out of time here. Look at me. My life is obviously ending. My days go by so quickly. I, I, if we're going to do this, God, we've got to do it now. His his days are flying by, which means that his opportunity to plead his case is quickly vanishing. This is what he's saying through his poetry. His pursuit of of justice here, because he's demanding and believes he needs justice here, right? I need justice. I need to get out from under the judgment. I need justice. This pursuit becomes more and more pointless with each passing day. He figures my days are swift. I'm running out of time Why bother? This is his rationale, his logic. Verses 27-29, through if I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? Job tells Bildad that he could try to forget his complaint. He could try to look to the bright side. Lord knows I've tried that. This whole situation's really bad. I'll just try to make myself happy. That never works. He's telling Job dad, Job, Job Dab. He's, he's telling, that's a combination of Job and Bildad. That's what they should have, Dab. I'm going to start calling him Dab. This is what happens when I start talking too fast. He's telling Bildad. Then I'll just forget my complaint, I'll just look to the bright side of things, I'll just put on a happy face, right? I'll just put on a smile. I'll just change my disposition from sad to cheerful. But even if I go through all of this, it too will be an exercise in futility. Why? Because he dreaded further suffering. And because of the continuing uncertainty of his relationship to God, right? Because he thinks that's what's all messed up. I mean, God's doing this to me. My relationship with Him is messed up. Job wants to just, you know, flip on Joel Osteen and start lying to himself. But he knows that it it doesn't really, it doesn't matter. It makes no difference. I I can't pretend to be happy. I can't make myself cheerful. None of it's going to work. None of it's going to prevail. He's even worried that God might further judge him. He literally felt that he had been condemned by the Almighty and that his status would never change. And this is why he says, why then do I labor in vain? Why am I laboring to get a case in heaven before the Almighty? To me, he sounds a lot like Solomon toward the end of his life. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, meaningless everything is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. This is who he sounds like to me. Verses 30 through 31. If I wash myself, listen to what else he suggests. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. Job tells Bildad that he could try something else, but it too would prove futile. He could wash his body with snow and cleanse his hands with lye. In other words, he could clean up his life. He could repent of his sin, but he believes this too would change nothing with God. God would still plunge Job into a dirty pit, thus causing even his own clothes to be repulsed by his filth and stench. It's really silly that And you can see the twisted thinking of Job that he would even entertain the idea of cleaning himself up and making himself presentable to God. We even heard, as Cameron was reading in Psalm 51, where it's God that cleans us up. It's foolish that he would even entertain such a notion, I'll just clean myself up. But he does understand that even that would be an exercise in futility. In his day, he couldn't clean himself up, only a bloody sacrifice could do that. And only the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, can do that in our days. Only the blood of Jesus can clean us and purify us spiritually before God. Job was convinced that God was against him and no no amount of pleading, no amount of proving, no amount of purifying would persuade the infinite Almighty to relent and end His suffering. This is what he's saying here. 32 and 33, Job says, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Job tells Bildad that that God is not a man like him, someone he can answer and meet in court, right? (laughs) He's not somebody that, he's not like you guys where we could go talk in court and work it out. He's not like that. And, and he's literally in despair here because he, he believes he has no arbiter, one who could stand between him and God, and, and, and the arbiter could lay his hands on both of them and, and work out the situation between them. That's what an arbiter does. They, they have the power to decide a dispute. Synonyms for arbiter are adjudicator, judge, referee, umpire, middle person. And my personal favorite, mediator. Doesn't that sound familiar? We'll talk about Jesus in a moment there. Verses 34 to 35. Last verses here. Job says, Let God take His rod away from me, and let not the the dread of Him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of Him, for I am not so in myself. Lastly, Job tells Bildad that if an arbiter were to remove his rod, God's rod, from his life, which is an Old Testament symbol of God's wrath, right? Exodus chapter 17, verse 19, Psalm 89, verse 32, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. This is the, the rod that God bears of his, his wrath, the rod of his wrath. If an arbiter were to remove that rod of God's wrath away from the situation here, then the dread of divine judgment would subside, and Job would be able to present his case without fear. The last line, for I am not so in myself, means something like, as things stand, there is no way I can do any of this. Just what I've been arguing, there's no way that any of it's even remotely possible. That's what he tells Bildi. Closing. To kind of bring it to a point here. We have an arbiter. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh-huh. We have a mediator. Yeah. We do. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he is the only mediator between God and mankind, first Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 5, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, John 14, 6. Why? Because He is the only mediator between mankind and God. And the Father accepted Christ's work on the cross, in the grave, and through His resurrection. That's His mediatory work. And the Father accepted His mediatory work as our mediator, and the sure sign of this acceptance is what? The ascension of Christ, the enthronement enthronement of Christ at the right hand of God, 1 Peter 3.22. Did you know that? How do we know that the Father actually accepted the mediating or mediatory work of Christ? How do we know that? How do we know that to be sure? Right? He went to the cross, He died, He was buried, He rose. That's His mediating work. How do we know the Father actually accepted it? The fact that that Christ returned to heaven through the ascension, the fact that Christ is enthroned at the right hand of the Father right now, He sits at the right hand of the Father. That's what tells us that the Father approved of His mediating or mediatory work. Did you know that? One of the lost doctrines in the church that hardly ever gets talked about is the ascension of Christ and certainly the enthronement of Christ, which is the stamp of God's approval in that God is approving of the work that Christ did on our behalf. How essential is the ascension? It's essential, just like the church is essential. Christ is the mediator and His finished work, established reconciliation restoration between God and all who repent and believe Christ's mediatory work satisfied the justice and judgment and wrath of God so that it's not directed at those who repent and believe it still exists but our portion of the judgment of God went on to Christ thank God for that But Christ is not only the mediator, He is also the advocate. We have an advocate. He does precisely what Job wished for. He rises up and defends our cause based on the merits of His own suffering, His own death. When we sin, His strength of resolve rises all the higher. When we fail, He advocates on our behalf because that is who He is. Salvation is not some kind of formula. It is a person. All our sins have been forgiven, and yet we continue to sin. And the advocacy of Christ helps with that situation between the Father and us. He advocates on our behalf. Mm. It's just who He is. The finished work of Christ and advocacy of Christ ensures, listen to me very carefully, if you're going to walk away with anything, it needs to be this, the finished work of Christ and advocacy of Christ ensures that we will always be in a right standing before God no matter how we stumble. It's not just the work of Christ on the cross that ensures that, it is the advocating work of Christ that ensures it as well. That's His ongoing ministry as our great high priest, as our advocate. But this rock-solid, immutable, unchanging biblical truth does not negate our responsibility to kill sin. Because when we hear these things in our fleshly nature, we are inspired just to do whatever we want because we just know we're covered by our advocate. No, John Owen once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We've had that quote. It's in the bulletin and we've had it in the bulletin before. Job's suffering may not have been the result of personal sin, right? We learned that in chapters 1 and 2. But if we let sin Get a foothold in our lives, it will bring suffering not only to us but to others. Life is already filled with tribulation, amen. Why would we invite more tribulation in? Because we refuse to kill sin. We don't need to add more, it's filled with its own trouble. We must kill sin in the morning. We must kill sin in the afternoon. We must kill sin at night, especially at night. And when we can't seem to kill it, when we can't seem to to gain victory over it, because it's hard sometimes, we must approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Hebrews 4.16. And we must never, ever forget that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25, amen, amen. Aren't you glad that you have an advocate? Not just work of Christ on the cross, which is phenomenal and that's all we ever talk about, but just think about how when when He came up out of that grave and when... And, and, and He rose, and then He ascended, and he, he takes His seat at the right hand of the Father as our advocate so that our ongoing sins, He represents His finished work to us in those moments. It's not that the Father somehow forgets, oh, well, look, Phil's sinning again. It's not a matter of that, but as our advocate, He still stands in the gap for us. Our salvation is an ongoing salvation. It's not literally like once and done and that's it. We forget about it and move on. He's saving you right now. Right now he's saving you. How awesome is that? How awesome is that?